Jean-Jacques Rousseau said in the social contract, Our will is always for our own good, but we do not always see what that is. The people is never corrupted, but it is often deceived. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. I'm John Johnson, joined by Larissa Bianco and a very special guest today who wrote a very special book that you all need to read as soon as possible. If you can still buy it, it's probably sold out everywhere, selling so well. Dr. Emily Fenley, who's a uh, former John and Daria Berry postdoctoral research fellow at Princeton University. She has a PhD in politics from CUA, and her research interests include the history of ideas, politics, and the imagination, political ideology, and epistemology. And her book, is this your first book, Dr. Finley? Yes, this is my first book. Way to go. It's a really good first book. It's a really good any book. I think people are going to be reading it and talking about it for a very long time. The Ideology of Democratism. And, uh, you know, I'm burning through this thing right now. It is so impressive and so timely and so relevant, especially as we see the um, the intellectual fruits of Rousseau. Uh, and what they've done to our political lives and discourse and and how many on both sides of the aisle, shall we say, have sort of a conflicting reaction to Rousseau. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but give us, give give our audience, please, the elevator pitch of the ideology of democratism. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, it's an honor to be here. You bet. Uh, this book, the, the Ideology of Democratism, it puts forth the view that the West has been enchanted with a particular imaginative understanding of democracy that actually has very little to do with um, rule by the people proper. And I argue that this new imaginative version of democracy has its roots in um, the social contract of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who puts forth this very novel understanding of democracy, that true democracy is not the will of the people in the sense of um, the aggregate of votes or majority rule proper, Um, but true democracy is what he calls the general will. And so this is the, the highest or the elevated will of the people that is to be discerned in a kind of mystical way and involves um, this great and wise legislator figure. And Rousseau argues that very often the general will is is actually opposed to the actual historical desires and will of the people. And so we can see this idea playing out um, in the intervening centuries, but especially today, um, where you hear our elites say that um, such and such is a threat to democracy, especially um, the the will of a popular majority um, or even a plurality. And we ask, how could this be a threat to democracy? How could an electoral majority 
be a threat to democracy. Isn't that democracy? Well, not according to this Rousseauian vision, um, which which would hold that uh, we could have a very small rule by elites that goes against the will of the majority and that that could be considered true democracy under this uh, new dispensation. So what is the difference between democracy proper and what you call democratism? Well, democracy proper, you think of um, what the classics, the classical thinkers like Plato and Aristotle, and uh, I mean, up through Aquinas believed that they didn't necessarily think it was a good thing. They they sometimes equated it with mob rule, but it was the the rule by the people, literally the etymological origin of the word, demos, the people, rule by the people. Um, and this democratism, it uh, I argue that there is this understanding of democracy that has all of the features of a thoroughgoing ideology, and that to the other great isms of our time, belongs this new democratism where um, the the popular will doesn't need to play much of a role. So the popular will in the eyes of the ruling elites, and this is why we hear all this talk of threats to our democracy, saving our democracy, by our democracy, our democracy, quote, they don't mean the consensual collective will of the actual people. They mean something else. Um, what exactly is that? I mean, of course, they would probably say that they mean the will of the people, right? But we all kind of know that they don't. That's why our democracy, quote unquote, has to be saved from, we have to save it from ourselves, essentially, right? And any sort of popular uprising, popular movements. And we see this in the aftermaths of Con, uh, contentious elections, right? Like something is clearly not aligned with actually what the people want. There's some sort of ism being superimposed on the will of the people that we would call democratism. What is that? Right. That That's exactly right. Um, and so these elites have a, a particular normative understanding of politics and life and society in mind. They have they hold certain assumptions about the family, about gender norms, about biology? Um, uh, they they have a very distinct idea of what our political life ought to look like, and they call that democracy, whether or not it in fact enjoys the support of the people. Um, <clears throat> and so, of course, they have to couch their desires and their understanding of the normative role of pe- of politics. They have to couch that in term in democratic language, and they have to make use of the democratic lexicon because we live in the democratic age. Um, and so, they can't, they couldn't possibly say that you know what what we want is not democratic, but it's it's in your best interest. That's anathema. They they couldn't just come right out and say that. And so I'm not even arguing that this is necessarily a conscious um, decision. I don't think that uh, people like Nancy Pelosi or Obama or George W. Bush, I don't think they read Rousseau. I don't think they're modeling their actions off of the social contract. But Rousseau's ideas in one way or another, consciously or otherwise, have penetrated the society what the West to such an extent that even thinkers like Jacques Maritain, a Catholic, even he came under the influence 
of this um, democratist ideology. So fundamentally, uh, I mean, would you say that the de- the democratist ideology is baked into the cake in Rousseau himself? Um, whether or not the, the elites of the day are reading Rousseau, probably most of them aren't. But yeah, is it I, is is the is the is the popular movement of democratism uh, implicit or even explicit in Rousseau? Oh, absolutely. You look yeah. at his social contract and you zoom in on the portion where he talks about the idea of the general will versus the will of all. And that, in a nutshell, is democratism. This bifurcated understanding of democracy, where you have, on the one hand, actual democracy, what Rousseau calls the will of all, which is the, the aggregated tally of votes. And then on the other hand, you have this novel, um, mystical understanding of democracy, where you get the elevated will of the people, the general will, that is what Rousseau considers to be true democracy. Um, and so it, it contains a, a whole bunch of assumptions, like I said, about the family and gender norms. Um, there's so much involved there about morality and power and what life ought to look like. Uh, but that's, um, that's kind of, you have to look between the lines, read between the lines to see exactly what this type of democracy is that uh, our Western elites who argue for this type of democracy want. So there's this very poignant part in the beginning of your book. And if I had one criticism of your book, it's that this point you made uh, could use an entire book in itself, or at least a chapter or two. And I wanted more. But you point out that for Aristotle, the fundamental unit of society is the family. For Rousseau, there's this move uh, and and definitely precedes Rousseau, right? Probably Hobbes maybe even earlier, that the fundamental unit of society is the individual. Can you explain that pivot? Uh, unpack it, if you would, in Aristotle, and, and then the move toward the individual uh, for the modern. Yeah, I think that that is at the foundation of this new understanding of democracy that I label democratism. Um, because uh, in democratism, when you have this Rousseauian idea of a general will, it is that um, it's this mystical and it's the highest will of the people taken collectively. And so you can only take the people as this collective idea if you first start with um, a bunch of atomized individuals. And so the French Revolution really uh, brought to life this Rousseauian ideal where you no longer have a society that is broken down into corporate interests, where you've got um, interests based on region, based on um, uh, just the, the interests of, of the people, not just where they're located. Um, and so that was the, the United States has the federal has a federal system where we've got uh, different interests represented based on where you live, based on uh, how you live your life. Um, what your what your situation is, but with the French Revolution, it, it brought to life this Rousseauian idea that you just have one mass society, um, and that this plebiscitarian type of democracy is possible, where there's a national assembly 
and there's no longer the corporate interests represented, the different orders of society represented. There is just um, atomized individuals collected. And so that is a very Rousseauian idea within the general will. And why for Aristotle is is the the actual fundamental corporate unit is the family is the fundamental unit of society. It would make sense logically to say, well, you can, you know, theoretically break a family up into the individual. So why isn't the individual uh, the the fundamental unit? Where why is that untenable for Aristotle? Um, I th- it, anthropologically. Yeah, I think Aristotle holds an entirely different philosophical anthropology where that idea would have never even occurred to him um, because he models his understanding of politics off of uh, what he takes to be nature. And he sees the first most basic political unit in nature as the family. And he says that the father is the head of the family and um, that within this family unit, you know, there's different roles played in the home economics uh, and that the political life, it extends out from the family. And this idea, it is not unique to Aristotle or to um, the classics. We can see it persisting in Western thought up to um, Edmund Burke, who who has the same understanding of, of the naturalness of the family and that the political order extends out from these natural family units. So for Aristotle, man is by nature a political animal as as an extension of his rationality. He's naturally corporate, a corporate creature. Where is the first move toward, as you said, the atomization of the fundamental political unit? Yeah, I think um, you were right when you mentioned Hobbes, and I also bring Hobbes up as um, Rousseau's predecessor and and his foil. I think that Hobbes makes a very similar argument to Rousseau precisely because he also um, takes the individual to be the fundamental unit or building block of political society. And so when you begin from that idea, you end up with a very different understanding of politics than if you begin from the idea of the naturalness of the family. <clears throat> so for Hobbes, man is a solitary creature. Uh, you can probably rattle off a few of his famous quotes about this, but you know we know that the guy was just terrified himself personally of death. I think he lived to be pretty old actually, but uh, he, li- <laughs> he was terrified of just getting murdered by, by somebody else. So for Hobbes, uh, everybody's sort of at war with one another and just sort of erecting this polis for the sake of preserving individual life in the face of everybody who is my enemy. Is that an accurate reduction? Yeah, I think it is. And I think paralleling this idea of the individual is um, this concept of a, a historical social contract idea. Hobbes makes use of it, and so does Rousseau. And so instead of looking to man in his historical um, instantiations, uh, Hobbes and Rousseau imagine a fictional time um, before civilization and before political order in which they envision what life was like. And they both understand it to be um, 
socially atomistic and they start with what the individual was like in that social state. Um, and so again, you end up with an entirely different philosophical anthropology when you begin with this ahistorical fictional state of nature as your basis rather than looking to um, history. If you put on your epistemological hat for a second, do you think that political ideology has uh, a, you know, deeper roots in the likes of Descartes' epistemology or William of Ockham? Um, just, just as far as the way reality is known, um, whether it's known as other or known through, uh, you know, a more intrinsic way. Um, is that a bridge too far? Or do you think that the political thought of Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau have epistemological roots in the likes of Descartes? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think I mentioned Descartes, but really at, at the bottom of all of this is an epistemological understanding of how we can know anything. And so the Cartesian epistemology is a historical, it's rationalistic, um, and it is fundamentally opposed to a uh, Aristotelian, Burkean, historical epistemology. And so um, you you start with a, a Cartesian epistemology of abstract rationalism. And when that is applied to politics, it so easily lends itself to all of the isms, which I would argue all of the political isms, all of the great totalitarian ideologies, democratism included, um, have their basis in ahistorical and abstract thinking. So the 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 primitive man for Rousseau and Locke, and they would probably admit this or would, I mean, I don't know if they would admit it, but it's not real, right? There's no, there's no historical basis for it. It's sort of, it's almost teleological in the sense of like, it's an ideology of what they envision man becoming. Um, do you think it's just, do you think it's just a ruse to sort of stipulate as a premise, this primitive man, or do they really think that that's who man is at nature? I, I don't know what is in their heart of hearts, but Rousseau, um, he says, I think it's at the beginning of the first discourse, let us begin by setting aside all of the facts. So they have no bearing, <laughs> right. so they have no bearing on the question, um, right? You could see him being very popular on Twitter today um, right. because this is the modern methodology. Uh, and when he's talking about the state of nature, I, I think he nods in that direction that it, it doesn't really matter if this is exactly how things looked or if this, or if this was ever really the case. But he says that essentially um, this had to have been the case because he, he reads into our nature what he then uh, transposes onto his state of nature. Um, I think John Rawls does the exact same thing with the veil of ignorance. So there's already built into the criteria or into the parameters. There's already um, normative assumptions being made, but it, it's uh, it doesn't appear that way uh, on first glance necessarily. Break down for us anthropologically what Rousseau thinks of 
the man in in his heart like fundamentally is man good bad ugly somewhere in between <clears throat> rousseau takes a very um unchristian approach the the archbishop of paris banned his works banned the emile for its denial of original sin uh, rousseau believed that deep down people are generally good um it, it this this poses an interesting challenge for him uh, in the discourse on inequality because he has to grapple with the fact that there is evil in the world and that there are these gross inequalities. And so if it doesn't spring from the heart of man, if it is not part of our nature, then where does it come from? And he identifies the first man who stuck a stake into the ground and said, this is mine and everyone else foolish enough to believe him. He says that this is the origin essentially of evil. Um, but he still, he, he treats it as something of an accident and that the way to remove this stain is to reconstruct our um, social institutions and our political institutions, because those really are the sources of evil. It is not within the breast of man. Human beings are by nature good, according to Rousseau, and we naturally feel pity for one another. Pity is at the crux of his philosophical anthropology. <clears throat> so for Rousseau, and I think you point this out in your book in a pretty funny way, but I mean, famously, he sort of thought of, you know, this is like the Sart, Sartrean view, I guess, too, that like, you know, hell is other people. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I'm great in my heart. You know, it's just that other guy over there that has a problem. And if I didn't have to deal with him, everything would be hunky-dory. So how does Rousseau deal with that uh, if fundamentally we're just you know, good in the heart, you know, and by the way, let's qualify, right? Because traditionally the Christian would have, would say also, man, it's fundamentally good as a matter of ontology, right? We're, we're creatures, we're being loved into being. Um, but I think prophet Jeremiah says, right? Nothing is more torturous than the human heart. So there's something desperately crooked or desperately wicked to coin uh, Patrick Downey's phrase uh, about the human heart. And for Rousseau, that's not the case, right? So just distinguish between the Christian idea of man as good and Rousseau's idea of man as good. Yeah, the, the classical and Christian understanding of human nature is that it is ethically dualistic. It is prone to good as well as evil. Um, and we have a fallen nature, but we are good in the sense of being made in the image of God. Um, versus the Rousseauian understanding of human nature and being fundamentally good. Um, he, he sees our nature being good in, in a more um, material sense. Uh, we're, we're not out to harm our neighbor. We're uh, in the state of nature, he says, we're, we're, we're just out to satisfy our needs. Um, and there's not any natural affinity between people, but there's not any natural enmity either. Um, and so again, that, that kind of gets back to the social atomism. Do you think he's uh, serious about that as a student of Hobbes? Because Hobbes would definitely say there's there's quite a bit of natural enmity between people, right? Even if even if I'm primitively good, it's like everybody else is coming to kill me and I have to protect myself against them. Well, I mean, Rousseau is a sentimental humanitarian. And this is, this is part of the ethic of democratism. And so Rousseau, he, like you said, he, um, 
he says that he loves, he's a lover of humanity and that human beings in general are good. But as you're reading his literary and autobiographical writings, it's clear that he really hates the people who he comes into contact with. He's a real misanthrope uh, and um, he's, he's paranoid. Uh, he thinks people are out to get him um, and he's very bitter. And, and so that stands in contrast to his philosophy of, um, of the goodness of humanity. And you have to wonder how, how he reconciles the two. But you can see this ethic playing out today. It is such a crucial part of democratism, ethic of sentimental humanitarianism, where, um, you know, you, you claim to love humanity and, and stand with Ukraine, or you put the, the, the raised fist as your background on Facebook or something to signal your virtue. But in reality, you know, your, your neighbor has a flat tire and oh, sorry, you can't really help out or you can't make dinner for, you know, the sick person down the street or something. Cause that, that's too much effort. Uh, and Rousseau, he, he inaugurates. You don't, you don't have to, right? Because why, why would you have to make dinner for, for your neighbor when you support the thing and when yeah. you recycle, you know, um, you know, <clears throat> I mean, you're, you're a great person because you stand with Ukraine and put the bumper sticker on. So there's a, there's a counterfeit love at work, which is really at the heart of all modern political thought. Uh, I didn't want to cut you off. Please continue. No, I was just saying Rousseau really inaugurates that um, new idea to the point that um, many Christians have fallen for this sentimental humanitarianism as being authentically Christian. And I, I examine um, Jacques Maritain in the book uh, and, and how he is an exponent of democratism, but uh, he, he too kind of falls for this sentimentalism that is very Rousseauian and very secular. Yeah. Larissa, you probably have a few questions. I know I've got a bunch. Jump in anytime. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking that um, if you have this enlightenment view, well, it makes sense that the government that would arrive would simply be one whose job is to protect and defend because it's not thinking about the family. It's thinking about the individual. So then the government would just simply be there to protect my stick from your stick um, and create almost the government is just there to, to um, bring about justice and maybe like defense from outside borders, which would would that then be democracy or is that democratism? Well, Rousseau imagines a very um, wide role for the state uh, through the legislator figure. But what he's arguing is that he's preserving all of our individual freedom and autonomy because whatever um, whatever the general will is, that is our highest will, and we all consent to it, if only deep down. And so even if we don't think we want something um, that the legislator is imposing, if it is the general will, then we do want it deep down. And so you can see how this translates politically because it's a very you'll, you'll mystical... Own no you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. <clears throat> yeah. And it's deep, in your own down, best you, interest. You exactly. 
Exactly. Deep down, you want this. It is in your own best interest. Um, this is what's good for the climate. This is what's good for public health. This is what's good. With this is what is for the public good. And so, even if you think you don't want it, deep down you really do because you cannot have a will that opposes the general will. It's impossible. Rousseau argues, um, but this is a very mystical and abstract uh, articulation of democracy, and therefore it's very dangerous because. It has to be translated politically and historically. And Rousseau, you know, finds all these different workarounds through the legislator. He ends up having to come up with with things like um, a public censor and a civil religion. There has to be all kinds of institutional supports for this. And it ends up looking like a a totalitarian system. It's a totalizing political system. And so it's easy to see how that... um, translates or how there are parallels to that idea uh, today where exactly you will own nothing and you will be happy. This is in, uh, this is in your own interest. This is for the greater good. You need to just get the vaccine or wear the mask or, you know, whatever it happens to be the microchip, who knows how far it'll go. But um, it's, it's something that is pushed by a minority and it's claimed to be in the interest of a majority and therefore it is democratic. Why do people fall for it? Why? I mean, or do they, right? Or I mean, are we all just being gaslit into soft or even hard tyranny at this point? Do you think everybody just kind of, you know, sees that Klaus Schwab billboard and wants to throw up, but then supposes that everybody around them is like on board and they're worried they're the odd man out? It seems so uh you know absurd and and forceful it's like how is anybody buying this stuff why are we doing but then you do you go to whole foods and everybody's like wearing a mask um and and you just you know you wonder if you're the only one who's not crazy uh but yeah, i i think yeah. that the the philosophy of radical individualism works to the advantage of the democratists because um, then you feel like you're alone. And by breaking up the corporate interests, breaking up the nuclear family, breaking up communities, um, sowing division, sowing racial division, um, capitalizing on whatever um, grievances, real or imagined, are a part of that society, you know, exploding those. This, this is a classic tactic of the communists. Um, and it's being weaponized now. And so when you're able to to atomize society like that, then it's difficult for um, for there to be opposing interests to these very powerful elite interests. Yeah, there's so much I want to ask about there. So what role you need to let like to pull off the Rousseauian trick on society, you need a legislature or legislator. And you needed education. Like it doesn't work without a certain sort of education as outlined in the meal. And and then you need this, this uh, outside arbitrary legislator. So unpack those two things as constitutive elements of the Rousseauian project that we're now all enjoying or not enjoying. Yeah. So for Rousseau's general will to come in into effect, he says that, well, first of all, um, there's certain conditions that have to be met. And first of all, we are to have no communication with each other. 
And so this, again, gets at the idea of atomizing society, because Rousseau argues that if we are to communicate with one another, then thought leaders will emerge and um, interests may align. There might form factions, what he considers to be factions, what we might consider to just be secondary civil associations that would protect us from the state. But Rousseau sees those as standing in the way of the general will. Um, and so uh, he he believes that there needs to be the people need to be prepared for for the general will and education is a big part of it and so is the legislator figure the legislator serves this technical role of bringing into existence the general will because you're reading the social contract and you say well how can the general will come into existence the people would have to already be what they are to become through the legislator um and so Rousseau says that in some sort of divine way, this all-powerful and all-knowing figure can uh, midwife into existence this new uh, democratic dispensation. Um, but at the same time, he believes that the people need to be of a certain character and quality. And so you read his Emile, which is his uh, treatise on education, and what he considered to be his greatest work, he writes at one point. Um, and, and that is how he thinks that the soul ought to be crafted in a way that will prepare the person for citizenship in the general will. Not unlike um, Aristotle's ethics is to his politics, but it's, it's very, very different, the Emile to the social contract. Um, and so education is such a huge part of democratism, which is why we are seeing this struggle to the death over um, the education of children. And it's really coming to a head. We saw it in Virginia um, with uh, the, the parents who wanted rightfully to have control over their children's education. Um, and this was, uh, this was, I think, ultimately what got Youngkin elected was when he was able to capitalize on that moment. But you see it. Uh, all over with the homeschooling movement, um, that screed that Elizabeth Elizabeth Bartholet at Harvard wrote against homeschooling and said that there should be a presumptive ban against homeschooling. And she writes in one of the first lines of this 80-page uh, review for um, a law review in Arizona. One of the first things she says is that um, there should be a presumptive ban because the parents who are homeschooling, they are doing it against um, democratic norms. And it is uh, essentially not, they are not part of the, the, the democratic culture. It's a threat to our democracy, these homeschooling families. Right. And so and taking control of the education is very, very important. It's essential um, because if you kind of read between the lines, I think in Rousseau, fundamentally, you want to follow your heart, right? And and in all of its perversity, which he wouldn't call it that, obviously. But I think the unstated truth there is why do you want to do that? Why do you want to affirm a five-year-old's, you know, non-gender when he puts on heels or something like that and say, oh, you know, let him follow his heart? Because when you can make a person a slave to his or her passions, then you can make that person docile ultimately to the legislator, right? Is that pretty much the end game? Is is that you basically subordinate the human good and the human will and the human intellect to the lowest faculties so that they can be malleable 
at the hands of the tyrannical super state. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think you nail it. Um, <clears throat> it's a very Rousseauian idea, this, this idea of affirmation, um, affirming whatever, uh, whatever perverse desires spring up from moment to moment, just constantly affirming that and affirming spontaneity. It's, it's a very Rousseauian idea. And it, it plays directly into the hands of the all-powerful state. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're okay. exactly right. So let's sort of do a light. I have so many questions about just the modern currents in political thought. But let's just talk briefly. I don't want to leave this out. But let's talk briefly about John Locke. Because uh, in my mind, Locke is sort of like a craftier Hobbes, you know, and he's, he's, he's definitely in the same current, but he sort of dupes a lot of American thinkers on the right. You know, I, I guess we can name names like you hear Mark Levin, like, you know, it's John Locke, you know, is where, is where it's at. You know, it's like, whoa, you know, you're missing you're, you know, if you bite on Locke, you're, 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 you're throw, you got to ditch Aristotle, right? You got to ditch the traditional understanding of the human person, the family, the polis. So what, just tell us briefly about the relationship between Locke and Rousseau, uh, and then and then the the different currents there that that grow out of those ideologies in in American thought. Yeah, Locke is um, he's very similar to Rousseau in a lot of ways. Um, he he similarly sees the family and marriage as unnatural, although he may not necessarily be as hostile to those as Rousseau is, but he sees them as, as unnatural. And he believes that merit, the purpose of marriage is for um, the production of goods. And that um, as soon as it stops being contractually beneficial, that the marriage can dissolve. Um, And uh, so he revolutionizes political thought. Um, he was a he was a real revolutionary. That you're right. I don't think a lot of people on the right see. They take Locke to be this defender of limited government. Um, he's you know the the champion of libertarians. But right, and he sort of couches a lot in this like pseudo biblical jargon. And then you're mm-hmm. like, Oh, wait a second. Is that, in, is that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he does so he's what just, Jefferson he's, does there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. And so, so he's basically duped the American right for some reason, which I can't quite figure out, but you brilliantly trace the thread of this modern thought, you know, creeping into the bed sheets of America through Thomas Jefferson Woodrow Wilson. So just take us through, you know, where Rousseau, Hobbes, Locke most rear their ugly heads into the American experiment through the likes of Jefferson, Wilson, where take it wherever you want to go. Yeah. Well, these three social contract thinkers revolutionize our understanding of, um, of nature and what is natural as far as the family, the, the basic political unit um, versus the individual. Um, they, all three of them are ma- philosophical materialists and uh, they, they are all epistemologically uh, 
ahistorical and abstract in their thinking. And so that has implications for politics in the West. Um, Thomas Jefferson, I argue, is a, a disciple of, of democratism, um, and he is its apostle for America. Uh, and then um, Woodrow Wilson is another one. Um, I look at Jacques Maritain, a Catholic thinker, very influential in drafting the UN Declaration of Human Rights, very influential in Catholic circles. He is still taken to be um, a conservative in many Catholic circles. Uh, and um, the next chapter I devote to um, Jürgen Habermas and John Rawls and the idea of deliberative democracy, which is an incredibly influential school of thought within democratic theory and within political science. Um, and then the final chapter <clears throat> is on the Bush doctrine and U.S. intervention in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I argue that this Rousseauian understanding of democracy has found expression in all of these different thinkers and movements in very, very powerful ways. And they similarly adopt his ahistorical thinking and his understanding of democracy as being rooted in this ahistorical and ideal notion of a general will being opposed to the historical and manifest will of the people. And we see that playing out in different ways in different thinkers, um, but the, the similarities are just striking. Okay, so let's talk about the neocons, perhaps the greatest double entendre in the, in the history of thought uh keys and the con so many of us were conned um i remember you know when i was in college being interested in what a guy like bill crystal had to say and uh so much wool was pulled over so many conservative eyes and now we all see like well what were we thinking you know like these guys these guys are not the good guys uh so how did that how did that happen um and why are we all sort of waking up to it now? Well, the neoconservatives were called the hard Wilsonians. Um, and there was a real connection mm -hmm. between Wilson and the neocons in both being these crusaders for democracy and wanting to spread democracy around the world. Um, and they were just, in, in my research that I had conducted, um, you you read the writings of like Robert Kagan uh, and um, William Crystal uh, in the 90s. And it seems uncanny that on September 11th, 2001, it's almost like, I hate to put it this way, but they got what they wanted, which was a event that could that could lead us into a war for democracy in the Middle East. It's really surprising, actually, in reading what they were writing in, in like 1999 and arguing for the United States and the, the, the bourgeois middle class Americans needing to be shaken from their torpor and um, to embark on a grand missionary journey in the world. And then suddenly 9-11 happens and we're able to do just that. And they had been whispering in the ear of George W. Bush. They were very influential in the Bush administration. Many of Bush's um, 
advisors around him had been students of Leo Strauss. And Leo Strauss was, again, another one of these ahistorical thinkers who is down on democracy proper as rule by the people. Um, and he, he puts forth, again, another idea that is very complementary of democratism. So you and get I'm noticing, these hard Wilsonians. <laughs> yeah, and th- this is a weird one because I'm noticing now a lot of Straussians on the right are sort of becoming apologists for Rousseau. They're like, I don't know why, you know, I won't name names here, uh, but they're like, I don't know why, you know, the right is so allergic to Rousseau and maybe we should give Emile another look. It's really concerning. Why is the right uh, at its worst so um, have such a tendency to to bite on Rousseau, hook, line, and sinker more and more right now? Like, where where does that come from? I don't know about Rousseau specifically, but I would say that Rousseau really gives a recipe for power. So for those ambitious, um, I don't know, power-seeking individuals or groups, um, Rousseau's social contract is the template for that. And it's all under the auspices of democracy. So there's something very alluring about that, I think. Yeah. And that's why your book is something everybody's got to read because uh, it really shows, it sheds light on the difference between democracy and democratism, this, this sinister ism that is not what you think it is. And so let's, you know, we're short on time. I know you got to go, but we let's, let's just ask ourselves how this is going to play out. Um, Can, you know, the American experiment, for instance, is it salvageable against the uh, the chains, uh, pun intended, of Rousseau? Uh, is there is there is there a way out? And we definitely see bright spots, right? We see, you know, for every for every Wilson, there's a Coolidge, uh, hopefully. And I don't you know I don't know what you think about Coolidge. I think he's a cool guy, but um, you know, like we see, you know, for every Bush, there's a Trump, right? And granted, Trump is not reading anything probably but somehow he had the instinct to um you know to back us out of the neocon project at least in some tactical way so is there a way out i think it's it's tough because there are these two competing strains within the american tradition you have the thomas paine thomas jefferson um john rawls bush obama strain and then on the other side, you've got John Adams, Hamilton, I would put into that camp. Um, and I, I think that Trump is somewhat in that vein. Um, the, the historical interpretation of the United States. And so I think that part of, of a revival for the US, it, it, we, we need to stop thinking of America as an idea. I think that is a huge part of the neoconservative thinking. And I think that it's it's used as a weapon in order to turn America into whatever um, our elites want it to be. So by considering us to be an idea rather than an, a historical nation that is rooted in a particular people who came here with a particular set of ideas and religious background, Instead of thinking of us as any other country in the world, we are considered by these neoconservatives and many, many others to be an idea. 
And so we can be just about anything we want to be. We're just this melting pot. Um, and I think that that is a radical and revolutionary idea that has been weaponized and that is being used to transform our country um, in ways that are detrimental to the common good and um, and to the rest of the world, for that matter, because it translates into a foreign policy of um, crusading idealism that we can bring this this um, this false notion of our experimental idea to other countries and that they too can embrace that when it was never the case here. And it's not going to be the case anywhere else for that matter. Right. Um, so are you hopeful not to ask you the same question again? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it sounds so depressing when I put it that way, but actually I am hopeful because I think that the revival is going to come at the most local level. I think that seeing parents waking up to what's happening to our children getting onto local school boards, pulling their kids out of the public schools, homeschooling. I think that this is going to be the real revival is going to be with the next generations where, um, where the parents who have woken up to what is taking place are going to take, take it, take back their children essentially, and take back their children's minds from these poisonous ideas. I think that's where the thrust of the revival is going to come. And of course, it's also going to come from, you know, trickle down from the top, from places like this um, Institute, the Magnus Institute, uh, where you've got these wonderful podcasts and a revival of real education. And that is going to be passed on to the next generation. So I think true. that's how we're going to see it change. Yeah, so true. And we're, and we see so many of our fellows in the fellowship who are, you know, homeschooling moms who are like, whoa, I got to learn this stuff so I can teach it. Like, I know something's wrong. Something's there's some poison in the water. I got to get my family out of it. But now, oh, I got to go back and I got to read Aristotle's ethics. Okay. Well, there's a place to do that in the company of great uh, professors and great peers and great texts. And that's, that's exactly what we're providing. Uh, by the way, we would love for uh, uh, you to join the faculty of the Albertus Magnus Institute. Um, uh, what do you say? You want to, uh, you got, you got time on your hands to teach a few classes in the near future. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. I, I think you're doing great work and I would, I'd be honored to be a part of it. Ooh, jackpot. All right. That's, <laughs> that's so exciting. Um, let's last, uh, last uh, question about your book. You, 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 uh, you, you, you poke at our buddy uh, also on the faculty and we, we have a, you know, it's a college in the, in the, in the best sense, we hope that, you know, there's not necessarily a un uniformity of, of um, thought, but, but, you know, there is a universality and a, and a talos to it all, but, but we can disagree. So, you know, we've got a few Straussians on the faculty are doing great work. We've got a, we've got at least one resident uh, Maritanian uh, in, in the, in the, our buddy deal Hudson, does great work, teaches for us. People love him. Uh, but you, you, you got a nice little poke at this guy here when, when you say that, you know, he says that uh, Catholic so or neoconservative neoconservatism is an extension of Catholic social thought. I don't know when he wrote that or if he would still have the guts to admit to it, but just uh, in your view, tell us why uh, the, the neoconservative ideology is, inconsistent uh, at best with Catholic social teaching? Well, I think that the neoconservative ideology um, is, again, it's based on, uh, or it has a lot in common with the ideas of Leo Strauss 
and it's very ahistorical in its approach. And I think that there is the tendency among some Catholics to reinterpret Catholic social teaching and, and Christianity more broadly in the light of this Straussian philosophy um, and and in in seeing Christianity less as a historical religion and more as a kind of platonic and Straussian ahistorical philosophy. Um, and do you think uh, Strauss is a faithful interpreter of Plato? Um, I, I I'm not an expert on Leo Strauss, um, but I think that he has his own reading of the classics to be Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, I think Catholics can fall prey to that same interpretation of Plato and, and coloring Christianity with a a certain Platonism. Yeah. Which then leads to a foreign policy of crusading idealism, or it certainly can. A certain reading of it. I think we would have to say that Aristotle is indeed a Platonist. Right. So I, I would hate to, um, I'd hate to insert an artificial divergence within the bedrock of the tradition that is Plato and Aristotle. I think we tend to do that, Hmm. but maybe not. We should do a seminar, like a, a, a live seminar on this question, Catholic social teaching you know, Straussians, Platonists, Aristotelians. That'd be a lot of fun. Get you and a few of our, yeah. That would be fun. That would be fun. All right. Well, this has been awesome, Emily. Um, People can buy your book anywhere I take it, Amazon. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. And it's selling well? I think so. It's really hard to get the numbers or to know anything. It's a very opaque, uh, (laughs) academic publishing is so opaque. But last I heard it was doing very well. It had sold out um, in October, November, but I think that they are doing another print print run um, in the coming days. I think it was actually going to be the first week of December. So it should be back in stock. Oh, that's so exciting. It is such a page turner, The Ideology of Democratism by Emily B. Finley. Buy it, read it, love it. And uh, for Larissa Bianco, I am John Johnson, thanking you for joining us on the Magnus Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2022, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.